Can I have us turn to our text for this morning? Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Luke 9, 57 through 62. And if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews, that's on page 842. Uh, we've been spending pretty much the whole summer in the Gospel of Luke, uh, making our way through it. We're going to continue that for a few more weeks. Um, and if you remember, uh, way back at the beginning of this sermon series, we showed a video from the folks at the Bible Project. Um, the Bible Project does a number of different videos. They have a podcast, all sorts of resources for understanding the Bible better. One of the series of videos that they do are overview videos of every book in the Bible, kind of sketching out the big picture and argument uh, and what the different biblical authors are doing in the books that they write. Luke is such a dense gospel that they actually had to split that video into two different videos. So we watched the first video uh, early on in this series. Uh, we're gonna watch the second now just to kind of complete our overview of the book. And then after that, I'll read the text and we'll dive in from there. The gospel according to Luke. In the first video, we explored Luke's portrayal of John the Baptist and Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of Israel and of God's promises told in the Old Testament scriptures. We then watched Jesus launch his mission and bring the good news of God's kingdom to the poor among Israel, people of low social status and also people who are outsiders. And Jesus taught that his kingdom is upside down. It's a reversal of all of our common social values. This section culminated with Luke showing us how Jesus was a new Moses about to bring a new exodus by his death in Jerusalem. And so we come to the large center section of the book, where Jesus leads his newly formed Israel on a journey to Jerusalem. This part of the book consists mainly of Jesus' teaching and parables given on the road to the various people he encounters, mainly his growing group of disciples. And in this way, Luke portrays following Jesus as a journey. It's something you do where you learn as you go along life's path. So first, Jesus invites his disciples into his mission as he sends a wave of them to go ahead of him, announcing God's kingdom. So being a disciple right from the start, it means participating in Jesus' kingdom mission, making it your own. And as Jesus' disciples come back, he then starts to give various teachings about prayer, about trusting in God's provision. It's actually in these chapters of Luke that Jesus talks more about money, possessions, and generosity than anywhere else in his teachings. If following him is truly like being on the road, it should produce this minimalist mentality, creating a freedom from possessions that allows for radical generosity. Another key theme in these chapters is Jesus' continued mission to the poor. So as he travels, he keeps forming his new Israel, and he encounters all these people who are sick or blind. He meets Samaritans who are ancient enemies of the Jewish people, and famously Zacchaeus, a Jewish man, but who heads up tax collection for the Romans. All of these social outsiders meet Jesus, and they're transformed by the encounter, and so they join his kingdom community, which Jesus describes as a great banquet party. He is here to seek and save the lost, and so he's celebrating when people discover the mercy of God. But not everybody at the party is happy. Luke includes multiple stories of Jesus at banquets with Israel's leaders, and these all become heated debates where Jesus confronts their pride and hypocrisy. And so these contrasting banquet parties, they're captured most memorably in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. So a father had two sons, and one foolishly ran away and squandered his inheritance. But he comes back eventually repentant, and his father forgives him, and he throws this huge party to celebrate my son who was lost but now is found. 
But the older brother, who never left his father, he's angry, and he resents his father's generosity to this undeserving son. In this famous parable, Jesus is explaining his whole kingdom mission to these leaders. His parties represent God's joyous welcome of every kind of person into his family. The only entry requirement is humility and repentance. And so it highlights the tragedy of Israel's leaders who reject Jesus and his upside-down kingdom community. And this resistance to Jesus, it ramps up, and he finally arrives in Jerusalem for Passover. As he nears the city, he's weeping. His disciples are hailing him as the Messianic king, but Israel's leaders are denouncing him. And he knows that their rejection of his kingdom of peace is going to set Israel on a road of resistance and rebellion against the Roman Empire it will bring the city's downfall. And it's that destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus symbolically enacts. As he storms into the temple and he runs out the animal cellars, he brings the sacrificial system to a halt. And he says that this place of worship has become a den of rebels and will be destroyed. Now this act, of course, generates a whole series of debates between Jesus and Israel's leaders, all leading up to Jesus' prediction that the Roman armies will one day surround this city, it will desolate it and the temple all within a generation. With that, Jesus retreats with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal. It's the annual symbolic meal about Israel's liberation from slavery through the death of the lamb. And so Jesus turns the meal's bread and wine into new symbols about this new exodus. His broken body, his shed blood, will bring liberation for Jesus' renewed Israel. After the meal, Jesus is arrested and he's examined before the Jewish leaders and then put on trial as one claiming to be king. And Luke emphasizes Jesus' innocence. Pilate, the Roman governor, he claims that Jesus is innocent three times before giving in. Even Herod, the ruler of Galilee, finds nothing to accuse Jesus of. But the leaders finally compel Pilate to have him crucified, and so he is. But even in his painful death, Jesus embodies the love and the mercy of God he taught so much about. He offers God's forgiveness to the soldiers as they crucify him. And then, when one of the criminals executed alongside Jesus realizes who he actually is, he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus' final words are an offer of hope to a humiliated criminal. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And so, with this last act of generosity and kindness, Jesus dies. His body's placed in a tomb, and on the first day of the week, some of Jesus' disciples come to the tomb only to find it empty. And there are two angelic figures there telling them that Jesus is alive, that he's risen from the dead, and so they leave with their minds blown. And it's right here that Luke tells one of his most beautiful stories. Two of Jesus' disciples, they're leaving Jerusalem for a town called Emmaus, and they're heartbroken over Jesus' death. And then suddenly, Jesus is there, just walking alongside them, but they don't recognize him. He asks why they're so sad, and they go on to talk about all of their hopes, that Jesus would have been the one to redeem Israel. But now he's dead. It was all for nothing. But then later, as Jesus has a meal with these two, he breaks bread for them, just as he did at the Passover meal, and it's in that moment that they recognize him, then he disappears. 
Luke is telling this story to make a powerful point about following Jesus. When Jesus' disciples imposed their agenda and their view of reality on Jesus, he remains invisible and unknown to them. It's only when we submit ourselves to the upside-down kingdom of Jesus that's epitomized in his broken body on the cross, offered in self-giving love, it's only then that we see and know the real Jesus. The book's concluding scene is yet another meal. As Jesus appears to his disciples and he explains to them from the Old Testament scriptures how this was all a part of God's plan, that the Messiah would become Israel's king by suffering and dying for their sins and conquering their evil with his resurrection life. And so now, as Simeon the prophet promised back in chapter 2, Jesus' kingdom will move outward from Israel. So God's forgiveness can be announced to the nations and everyone invited to follow Jesus. But, Jesus tells his disciples, wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit to empower them for this new mission. And this, of course, keeps you reading right into Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. But for now, that's the gospel according to Luke. Got it? Luke chapter 9, 57 through 62. This is right after Jesus has started that journey to Jerusalem, so that's sort of the hinge point of the whole gospel, and this is what Luke writes. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said to him, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, last summer I was uh, talking with one of our neighbors uh, as his 14-year-old grandson mowed his lawn. It's his first time mowing, my neighbor told me. He said he wanted to learn how, and so I told him I'd teach him. We stood there for a minute or two as his grandson made his way back and forth across the yard uh, before my neighbor said, hang on a second, I'll be right back. He jogged over to where his grandson was mowing, gave him a few instructions, and then came back over by me. What'd you tell him? I asked. I told him to watch where he's going, my neighbor said. His lines are all crooked. He'll never keep them straight if he doesn't keep his eyes ahead. Well, that, in a nutshell, is actually part of what Jesus is saying here in our text for this morning, too. He's talking about discipleship in this passage. And in essence, what Jesus says here is, as my disciple, you need to watch where you're going. You need to keep your eyes ahead. In fact, you need to keep your eyes on me. After all, that's what discipleship, what being my disciple, is really all about. Uh, like we saw in that video, uh, this text comes just after the main turning point in Luke's gospel. Uh, like we've talked about kind of throughout this series, Luke structures his gospel sort of as a travelogue of sorts. Uh, the first half, chapters 1 through 9, follow Jesus as he makes his way all around the northern region of Galilee, which is where he was originally from, preaching, teaching, healing, and casting out demons. And Luke's goal in those chapters is pretty simple. He wants to show us who Jesus is. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? But, but Luke sort of treats Jesus almost like a diamond. 
The same way that, that holding a diamond up to the light helps you catch a different side of it, helps you see all of the different aspects and angles of it in all its beauty and brilliance. Luke does that with Jesus here in this gospel. It's like he's holding Jesus up to the light so that we can see him in all his brilliance and glory too. And so that's what Luke does in the first half of this gospel. He tells us story after story after story about Jesus, revealing all these different angles and aspects of who he is and putting him on display for us to see. That's what the first half of this gospel is all about. It's meant to show us Jesus, help us understand him, and as a result, come to trust in him as our Lord and Messiah. The second half of Luke's gospel, though, is meant to help us understand what all of that means. That's because the second half of this gospel follows Jesus' long, slow, and to a degree foreboding journey to Jerusalem. As Luke writes just before our passage this morning, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus' time up north in Galilee has come to a close. His ministry of preaching and preparation has largely come to an end. It's time now for him to head elsewhere. It's time for him to head south towards Jerusalem and everything he'll face there. It's time for him to head towards his passion, his abandonment, his crucifixion, and ultimately his grave. That's what the second half of this gospel shows us. It shows us everything the first half of this gospel has been pointing ahead to. It shows us Jesus' determined journey to Jerusalem. It shows us his dedication to the will of his Father. And it shows us just what kind of Messiah Jesus ultimately will be. It shows us one more thing, too. That's because it also shows us what kind of disciples of him we're meant to be as well. Uh, That's something that Luke hasn't talked about a whole lot in this gospel yet, at least not in the passages that we've looked at in this series. Uh, Like we said, Jesus has talked a lot about Jesus. He's talked a lot about who Jesus is, a lot about what Jesus has done, and a lot about how we ought to understand or see Jesus. But he hasn't, to this point, talked a lot about what it means to follow Jesus. Some, and we've certainly seen a bit of that throughout this series, But for the most part, to this point in in his gospel, Luke has sort of kept the lens narrowly focused on Jesus himself. What he starts to do here in this passage and in the ones that follow, though, is he begins to pull back a bit. He begins to zoom out, if you will, and give us a bigger picture. And as part of that, one of the things that Luke starts to give us more of a sense of going forward in his gospel is who we are supposed to be as Jesus' disciples. That's what this text this morning is really all about. Luke gives us three stories here, three vignettes, three examples, both of what discipleship to Jesus does and also doesn't look like. After nine chapters, Jesus has finally started his journey towards Jerusalem. Along the way, though, he encounters three would-be disciples, and his interaction with them helps us to understand not only what it looked like to be his disciple back then, but what it looks like to still be his disciple today. The first would-be disciple shows up here in verse 57. Luke writes, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
First, I'll just say that Jesus' responses here, both to this disciple in verses 57 and 58, but then also the other two in the next few verses, they've always kind of surprised me. After all, given what we know about Jesus, his frequent association with sinners and outcasts, his willingness to engage, touch, and fellowship with those who are impure, and his ready welcoming of those that the rest of society ignores, given all of that, shouldn't we expect to find Jesus more open, more receptive, more accepting of these potential followers who find him here on the road? So why isn't he? Why does it seem like Jesus responds so coolly to these disciples here, setting such a high bar and shooting down the hopes and dreams of these would-be followers? Well, one thing pretty much all the commentaries I looked at uh, brought up in relation to this text is Jesus' parable of the sower, which he tells in the chapter just before this, chapter 8. Put simply, towards the start of this ch- that chapter, as crowds of followers are coming to him from all over, from town after town, Jesus offers this parable. He says, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on the rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. And when he had said this, Jesus called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. As so often happens with Jesus' parables, though, his disciples don't really get it. They don't immediately understand what he's talking about. And so they ask him, and Jesus explains, this is the meaning of the parable, he says. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. In other words, the parable of the sower is basically a story about the different kinds of responses that people had towards Jesus. And like I said, pretty much every commentator on our passage this morning brings it up. Why? Well, as N.T. Wright puts it, many find the grace of the gospel shocking, including, it seems, many who see Jesus and think it would be a fine thing to follow him. The people who speak to Jesus on the road are like the seed sown on rocky ground or among thorns in Luke 8. They want to follow, but have conditions attached. Are they ready to drop what they're doing and come right away? That's the million-dollar question. And that's the question that Jesus seems to be asking each of these disciples here. When they encounter him, he's asking them, are you ready to drop what you're doing and follow me? Or do you have conditions and prerequisites attached? Let's make it a a bit more personal this morning. Are we ready to follow Jesus? Or do we have conditions and prerequisites attached? Either way, I think that parable helps explain why Jesus comes across as so demanding here. It's not that he doesn't want followers. It's not that he doesn't like these people who come to him. It's not that he doesn't care about or appreciate them, especially those who offer to follow him. 
It's just that when it comes to following Jesus, there can be no competing priorities or interests that might potentially get in the way. Put simply, discipleship to Jesus is an all or nothing affair. And so if there's anything else in our lives that threatens to lessen the demand, water it down, and dilute our desire for Jesus, he simply tells us that we need to get rid of it first. That's why Jesus says what he does to these would-be disciples here. It's not that he doesn't care about them or want them to follow him. It's just that he wants them to know what following him really looks like. And so let's start with the first one. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem with his disciples when a man comes up to him and says, I'll follow you anywhere, wherever you go. And Jesus replies to him, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What's Jesus saying there? Well, very simply, what Jesus is doing here is he is giving this disciple a picture of what life with him looks like. I am totally dependent on the hospitality of others, Jesus is saying. I don't have a place of my own. I don't have a place to lay my head. I simply stay where others let me. Can you do that? Can you live that way? If that's what following me looks like, can you do it? I think we forget this sometimes, but as Jesus traveled from town to town preaching, teaching, and healing, he wasn't staying at five-star hotels with a a nice pool and a hot tub and a continental breakfast. Um, He was at the mercy of his hosts in whatever town he was visiting. He stayed in the homes of those who let him stay there. He ate their food. He survived off their support. In fact, Luke even spells that out at the start of the chapter just before this, chapter 8. In the first three verses there, he writes, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. She's pretty high up. I mean, Herod is like the Jewish king right now, so she's married to the household manager for Herod. And then Susanna and many others. And then this is the part I want us to see. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Okay, I'll leave the women in ministry implications alone this morning. Um, That was a joke. No one laughed. Great. But the point there is clear, right? Jesus isn't like a fox who has a den. He's not like a bird who has a nest where he can go back to. Instead, he's going from place to place to place, hosted by others, fed by others, supported by others. And so he asks this would-be disciple, can you do that? Can you live with me like me? I think that's a good question for us still today especially those of us who, who maybe lean more type A and organized and planner, right? You see, sometimes following Jesus means having everything figured out. It means having all our I's dotted and our T's crossed and, and detailed lists and calendars. But sometimes following Jesus means the opposite. It means being okay with not having everything all figured out. In fact, sometimes it means that we can't or shouldn't have everything figured out. I'll never forget uh, sitting in, in my ethics class in seminary. One of our professors said, you know what? When, when a young person in a CRC congregation used to stand up and say, I think God is maybe calling me to be a missionary, the whole church would get excited. They would rally around that young person and they would say, thanks be to God that you feel this call to go and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And they would support them in whatever way they could. 
And he said, nowadays, when a young person stands up in a CRC church and says, I want to be a missionary, often one of the first questions is, how are you going to pay for your student loans? I've never forgotten that, because that's rung so true in my experience in the church. We feel like we have to have everything figured out before we can take that step into following Jesus. And yet as Jesus asks this would-be disciple here, are we willing to follow him even if we don't have it all figured out? Are we still willing to be his disciple then? Are we still willing to go where Jesus goes? Before we answer that question, remember where Jesus is heading here. Remember where he's going. He's on the road to Jerusalem. What is it that waits for him there? What is it that he finds at the end of that road? Where does that lead him? It leads him to the cross, right? In essence, that's what Jesus is asking this first disciple. Is he willing to follow Jesus there? That's what he's asking us as his disciples still today, too. Are we willing to follow Jesus there? Are we willing not just to live like him, but also to die like him? Because when it really comes down to it, that is what it means to follow Jesus wherever he goes. It means following him to the cross. Before long, another disciple appears, would-be disciple, Luke writes, Jesus said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Again, this seems over the top, right? I used to read this text and think Jesus was being pretty calloused here. I mean, he calls this guy to follow him, and the guy says yes. There's just one thing that he wants to do, one thing he needs to complete. He says, yes, but just first let me go and bury my father. It's a reasonable request, right? That makes sense. That's not too much to ask. And what Jesus does here is he basically responds by telling this guy, there's no time. Let the dead bury their own dead, he says, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Go and proclaim the kingdom now. What's going on here? Well, one commentator I read offered some helpful context. Uh, Put simply, he said that in many ancient cultures, including the Jewish culture apparently, um, they practiced a two-part burial system. The first part was called primary burial, and it consisted of placing a newly dead corpse in a sealed tomb so that it could decay and decompose, which in that climate normally took about a year. After a year, though, the tomb would be reopened, the bones collected, and then they would be reburied in an ossuary or bone box. The second part of the process was called, uncreatively, secondary burial. And it seems that it was this second part of the burial process that this would-be disciple was asking Jesus permission to wait for. In essence, what this disciple is saying to Jesus is, yes, I'll follow you, but before I do, give me a few months to wait until my father is done decomposing. Then after I rebury him, I will come and I will be your disciple. And when you think about it like that, Jesus' response makes at least a little more sense, right? It's still challenging. It's still countercultural. It's still a high bar. It still would have been difficult for this man to do. But at least we can understand why Jesus says what he says, right? That's because as Jesus makes clear over and over and over in this gospel, the kingdom of God has started. 
It's begun. It's off and running on the ground and coming into reality more and more and more each and every day. And so as a result, what Jesus is saying to this guy is there's no waiting. There's no delaying. There's no give me a second to go and do whatever. The kingdom is breaking in now. It's happening. It's, it's moving as we speak. Even as we speak still today, it's going That's what Jesus is telling this second disciple. Let the dead bury their own dead. Someone else can figure that out. But you, if you're willing to be my disciple, then go proclaim the kingdom now. Because while you're waiting around for the right time, the kingdom is already happening. That's what Jesus is saying to this disciple. And truth be told, again, that's what he's still saying to us today. And so the question still applies. What sorts of things are keeping us from the kingdom? What's preventing you right now from participating in it? What sorts of things do we feel like we need to do or finish or accomplish before we're ready to really start living as Jesus' disciples? For me, the example that always comes to mind when I think about this is tithing. Uh, That's because I didn't tithe when I was younger, at least when I was a student. I worked my way uh, through pretty much all of college and seminary, but it was only the last year or two that I really started tithing. Before that, for years, I remember saying, well, someday I'll tithe. Once I get my degree, once I get a job, once I start getting a regular paycheck, then I'll do it. But not now, not yet. Right now, my money is for me. I would even say I'm investing in me right now, which sounds super selfish now that I say it out loud. Um, I'm thankful that I was eventually convicted of that. Pastor Dave Beelan at Madison Square Church, where I attended at the time, preached a sermon on tithing, and as part of that, he knew he had a whole congregation full of college students. He directly addressed, and I'll admit, destroyed the logic that I was using to not tithe. And in response, I started. And I actually found it to be this beautiful, joyful way to participate in God's kingdom. And yet, in light of Jesus' words here, I can't help but wonder, during all those years that I wasn't tithing, how much potential kingdom work, which I could have been a part of, passed me by as I sat on the sidelines waiting for the right time to start? It's a good question. It's a good question for that would-be disciple back then, and it's a good question for us as disciples still today. What is keeping us from participating in God's kingdom? What's, What's holding us back? What's what's so important that we're allowing the kingdom to pass us by? And let's be honest with ourselves. Is it really worth more than the kingdom itself? There's a third would-be disciple in this text. In verses 61 and 62, Luke writes, Still another would-be disciple said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. First, just like all the commentators bring up the parable of the sower in Luke 8 in relation to this text, they pretty much all bring up the call of Elisha when it comes to this part. That's because there are some similarities between that text and this one. 1 Kings 19 verses 19 through 21 records how the prophet Elijah called his successor Elisha to follow him. It says, Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. 
He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Now, apart from the fact that the Old Testament prophets were pretty weird, which if you read about them, they are, uh, what does this text tell us? Well, what it tells us is that there's actually a really strong precedent for this third would-be disciple asking Jesus to let her go and say goodbye to her family. After all, Elijah, only the greatest and most revered of all the Old Testament prophets, let his new disciple go and do that. So why not Jesus? Well, for starters, part of what Jesus seems to be saying here is, I'm greater than Elijah. And if he truly is who he says he is, if he truly is the Messiah, then that's true. While it might have worked for Elijah as a prophet to let Elisha go and say goodbye to his family, it doesn't work for Jesus. As the Messiah, there's a different calculus at work here, a different mission and ministry that Jesus is pursuing, and therefore a different kind of calling that he places on his disciples as opposed to Elijah. The bigger reason, though, that Jesus doesn't let this disciple go back gets at what I was trying to talk about in the introduction to this sermon. Jesus tells this disciple, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Again, what Jesus is really saying here is, keep your eyes on me. Like with plowing a field or mowing the lawn, looking around, looking back, looking really anywhere other than where you're going is gonna mess things up. And what Jesus is saying here is that the same thing is true of following him. If we're looking around, looking back, looking anywhere other than him, then like lines in the grass or rows in a field, our discipleship to him won't look the way it should. As the author of Hebrews writes, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as we run the race of discipleship marked out for us. He needs to be our only goal, our only object, our only ambition, the one we're fixated on, focused on, and following after over and above anything or anyone else. If that's not the case, then quite simply, like Jesus says here, We are not fit for service in his kingdom. Again, discipleship to Christ is an all-or-nothing game. There's no halfway, no mixed priorities, no Jesus and then fill in the blank. It's just Christ, just him that we look to, just him that we follow. So keep your eyes ahead. Stay focused on him. Follow where he leads. After all, that's what he did for us, right? We call that the good news, the gospel. And part of what the good news of the gospel says is that Jesus stayed fixated, doggedly, laser-focused on us. He followed the will of his Father, lived according to his plan, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? For us. He didn't look around, didn't look back, didn't look anywhere else. He looked only ahead for our sake. As his followers, his disciples, those obedient to and focused on him, we must do the same. As the hymn writer so perfectly puts it, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light 
of his glory and grace. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're so tempted to look all over the place, to look at any number of different people, different things, different circumstances, different needs, our worries and concerns like thorns growing up around us so easily can distract us and choke our faith away from us. Lord, give us your Holy Spirit. Work within us. Nourish and strengthen us by your word and fix our eyes on you alone. It's in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.